podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. In our hearts and minds, that we might receive the Word which you have given to us. May we be transformed, and may we know your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading, reading today comes from Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land that I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the twelve ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out twelve men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they have seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land that you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live among the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'll share with you a quote as we get started today. Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. That is uh, what the philosopher Aristotle believed uh, a long, long time ago he wrote that, about 2,300 years ago. I read a poll recently taken among Americans that answers the question, what is the chief goal uh, of life? What's the point? And many said that uh, things like to help out, to make a difference, something that adds value to our society. What was interesting about that poll was that most people, uh, when they had those actions saying that this is what gives point, they would follow it up with, I do it because it makes me happy. I do this or I do that because I want to be happy. Now, let me share another story. In 1946, there was a little book that was published Uh, And it has been on the top 10 most influential books pretty much ever since. Uh, It was written in nine days. It has sold over 10 million copies, and it has been translated in over 24 languages. The book is titled Man's Search for Meaning, and it was written by Viktor Frankl. Anybody know Viktor Frankl? Frankl was placed in a Nazi concentration camp in 1942, where he stayed until the camp was liberated three years later. While he was imprisoned, most all of his family perished at the hands of the Nazis, including his pregnant wife. 
Uh, Frankel uh, was a trained psychiatrist before, and neurologist before he went into the concentration camps. And while he was there, he put to work his, uh, his story, his background. He watched fellow inmates and he realized as he explored and shared life with them that there was a huge difference between those who lived and those who died in the concentration camp. Those who lived had um, a meaning, something that drove them to keep on keeping on in the midst of such darkness. Um, he, he, he would write, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. For Frankel, choosing one's own way was a really tricky road because if a person's own way only was or solely was happiness, then that person was in trouble. He would say the very pursuit of happiness is what thwarts happiness. And so we have right here at the very beginning a comparison between Aristotle, who says that's the whole point, and Frankel, who says, good luck. Which one is it? Well, let me add some uh, more confusion to the, to the mix. I was watching the news this week, and a reporter right here in Lexington was sharing. She had been interviewing younger generations and uh, was finding that most of them were holding up that Aristotle idea that happiness is really the pursuit or the end goal of life. The reporter continued that though happiness seems to be the goal, the rise of depression and anxiety disorders is also skyrocketing. Anybody aware of this or shocked by this? Um, she was speaking to ninth graders right here in our city of Lexington, and the reporter was listening to worries that, that quite frankly, the more I listened to it, the more troubled I got. See, the worries themselves were pretty normal. School, grades, uh, social pressures, things that probably all of us have felt at some time or another. But the emotions around those worries for these young people, these ninth graders, was really intense. In fact, the worries were creating um, compulsions to fear. Compulsions to fear. And a lot of those fears were the what-if situations, like an active shooter or terror attacks. Um, you remember when you were in school and didn't have to worry about things like that? Uh, beyond the news story tragedies, uh, they were also sharing fears of achievement and striving. And it wasn't just grades and college readiness, but it was this kind of swarming pressure around making it. The social fears were really high. Friends and loneliness and appearance. One said that her greatest fear was a lack of connection that came from all of this stuff piling up. I've said before that we are a Facebook generation, right? We're social media driven. We're the most connected, disconnected generation that's ever walked the planet. And it's not just Generation Millennial and Generation Z. Um, we can sit and have a, a family gathering and Nana and Papa and Mom and Dad and boys and girls, everybody's on their devices. We're striving for that connection and we have it right there in that room. And this fear for these young people was still a, a striving for happiness, but a reality that happiness wasn't being found. And we've been talking um, throughout this season of Lent about various wounds. And let me tell you real quick and in a hurry that the wound of fear is one of the most powerful wounds that there is. 
Fear by itself is a natural uh, reaction to something bad. It's a good thing. If you're in a situation and there is a threat of danger or pain, fear is a good thing. Right? I guarantee you that if Chad came over here this morning and he brought a box alongside with him and he opened it at any point during this service and a snake got out, I would be fleeing down that hallway as fast as I could move. Probably faster. I would take you out. <laughs> right? Fear can be a good thing. However, when we, when we fear, uh, I just shared mine, I would flight, I would run. Some of us fight, some of us freeze. We either come out swinging and we defend or we run away or we're unable to do anything at all. Fear in a situation where there is a threat is a good thing. But the wound of fear and the appropriate reaction to danger are two very different things. A wound of fear happens when the, that fear is based on perception that something might happen rather than it really might happen. Now that I've stated that, I have a perception that Chad is going to bring a box one Sunday morning and just sit it there and go, it's okay in the middle of a sermon. It's already in his mind, see? That's a perception of fear. That perception then lingers, and it's a dread that won't go away. It's a wound of fear that keeps that person continually in that fight, flight, or freeze mode. The wound of fear, it incapacitates our processing, our reaction. That wound of fear creates a lens through which we, we look at all of life. Um, a lens that carries along with it really painful side effects. Side effects like a gnawing doubt. This gnawing feeling of uncertainty that anything bad is going to happen. No good will come out. Danger is always right around the corner. Know anybody like that? You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, another side effect is the side effect of unbelief. Folks can speak truth to them, but the reality is that that fear has so grabbed us that nothing beyond our own experiences is going to matter. There's nothing but unbelief for anything but harm coming my way. There's also a side effect uh, of mistrust. Ever said, be careful to a child? I say it to Ollie all the time. Um, what are we saying when we do that? Be cautious. Be full of care of what you're about to do. Mistrust is a withholding or a pulling back in order to protect, but not just like a three-year-old climbing upstairs, but with everything in life. Mistrust takes be careful and turns it to, I am full of cares and worries. It's a big difference, right? Finally, fear breeds this side effect of life that is filled with insecurities, anxiousness. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be enough. I can't be accepted. I can't ever be embraced. And insecurity locks us up inside of a cocoon. It, it longs for connection, but it fosters this isolation, this escapism from all things that could do greater harm. And we find those greater harms everywhere we look. 
Now, these, these side effects of fear, they really, they, they translate to all of our relationships. They also translate to our relationship going with God. For example, when God doesn't move and we don't experience God's presence or power, then mistrust and doubt and insecurity, they flood our lives. And, and in those places, God becomes little more than some kind of ideology or, or some distant being who's very different from the God that we meet in our scriptures. God isn't really personally involved with us. He doesn't really care for us. God is little more than a story in an old book. That's what fear tends to do to us. It's how we view and, and even look at the God of heaven. Now, in the scripture reading that the Pastor Chad read for us a minute ago, we see a people on the verge of reaching a promise that God has given, that God's given to his people. Israel had been enslaved, right? They had lost their identity as humans. That's what enslavement does. Reduces you from person to object. And God redeems them, and he ransoms them from their captives. He leads them. He provides for them. He invites them to be human again. To be more than creatures, but to be his children. And, and God names them, and God gives them this identity on Mount Sinai. He gives them the law that is meant to show the world purpose? They, ask, they get to the very edge of the promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. And if you're a Veggie Tail fan, it sounds sticky, right? It still makes me laugh every time I think about it. No, nobody ever heard that in the Veggie Tales? It's just me? Wow, y'all need to... There's, they're on the, the rack out here, okay? Go rent one. Moses sends the 12 spies into this land to go and bring, go spy, bring a report. Have you ever thought that sometimes having information is a bad idea? Anybody or just me? Are you asleep? Is this thing on? Are you there? Sometimes I wonder if having information is is good or bad, and they come back, this group comes back with all kinds of information that ends up confusing everybody. The land is rich, it is bountiful, it is amazing, it has grapes the size of baseballs, it's like heaven on earth, it is also inhabited by some pretty big folk, they are large, they are fortified, and they are strong. And as the report is shared, ten of the spies are so overcome by their own words, by their own information, that they go, they, they share things like, we'll be like bugs to them. You hear the insecurity? We can't overcome them. Unbelief. That quickly becomes mistrust. Why did God bring us here but to just squash us? And from there, the murmurs of doubt make their way through the entire people. And fear seizes and it grips hearts. Some want to run. Some are just frozen. Two of them want to fight. Joshua and Caleb try and remind the people what God has done of who God is. And God, God's provided in the wilderness meat and water and bread. And God was with them in previous battles. And God rescued them in Egypt when they were at the sea. They are prepared for this. The two have a significant different point of view than the others, don't they? They're standing on a ladder and they're looking at something. What are they looking at? They're looking at God rather than looking at self. See, that's really what fear does. It directs our attention internally. And when that occurs, there is this trait or this vice that fear is most 
clearly connected to. I need you to stick with me because as I share it with you, you're going to go, what? These side effects of fear are internal things. And when we become so internally focused with fear, we tend to hide in one particular action. It's called gluttony. Now, before you go running to the golden corral, gluttony is most often associated with food. Yes, but it's really about more than food. It's about consumption. It's about um, being drawn by something, by being consumed by something, namely our own self-indulgence. When we're gluttons, we're consuming for selfish desires. We're seeking pleasure at all costs. We're seeking a way to deal with the fears that haunt us. When we succumb to gluttony, we're being controlled by this longing for balance in a life that is out of balance. Ever met anybody who can't be still? Don't look at me, that's not nice. No, I don't mean like the attention ADHD kind of thing. I mean the person who can't be still because if they're still, they're going to have all of those things come running up into their mind, their loneliness, their fear, their anxieties, their worries. Often what happens in those situations is we're trying to search for balance and gluttony is, easy, is easiest in seeing it as an eating habit, but eating is the simplest thing to turn to when we're seeking for control in our lives and control from our fears. There's a fear of being inconsequential, of not being loved, so we turn to a fridge that is filled with things that might make us happy. Let's go get that pint of Ben and Jerry's. How does that work out for you when you finish it? We aren't turning there for sustenance. We're turning there for pleasure. We're not just, and, and really not just pleasure, we're turning there to push back unpleasantness. Gluttony is about having control. Anybody seen the movie When Harry Met Sally? All right. In Harry Met Sally, it stars Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal. They, they go on this kind of the country tour and they go into a restaurant and Meg Ryan's character she orders a salad in a very specific way. Those of you who seen it, you remember? I want, a, I want this salad but I want the dressing on the side and I want this over here and I want this put over on this part of the plate but I only wanted this and if you can't do that then I want this whole other meal, this whole other entree but I only want it on this bread and I only have to have it cut this certain way and do you know what that's called? Gluttony. That's called gluttony. Billy Crystal sits there, what? Throughout the entire ordering process. It's a way of living that says, I can't be happy unless it's my way. That's a, that's a gluttony. In fact, the code of the glutton is my way or no way. Now, if you are a precise orderer, I'm not calling you out this morning, but I am asking you, can you be happy if it's delivered another way? What were the two spies trying to persuade the ten and the rest of the crowds to see? They were trying to direct their attention somewhere else. They're pushing them beyond this crippling fear to trust in the one who had brought them that far. They're challenging this desire for self-pleasure, for self-fulfillment, for self-protection with the idea that their true purpose and meaning comes from focusing on him. Fear had arrested their hearts and they became, in that spot, gluttonous. They became gluttons for control. Well, 
If you have heard the story, then you know that God gives them what they need in order to overcome that fear. He redirects them from their self to reliance on him. It takes 40 years. It takes 40 years of pulling out the fears of Egypt from these people. It took a couple plagues to get them out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. They began a 40-year period of fasting from this consumption that they had so given themselves over to. They put their focus at this time not on, on their fear, but on a God, and on a God who said who they were and who they were becoming. Now, I would bet that most of us in this room wouldn't admit to the vice of gluttony. And again, we can get stuck on the buffet and the eating thing. So let me ask you this this morning. Um, Rather than ask if you've got a vice of gluttony in your life, let me ask you this. What consumes you? What consumes you? When you're still and quiet, is there a thought? Is there something that just goes racing and you can't stop? Maybe it's food. Maybe it's the next purchase consuming you. Maybe it's being consumed with going to the gym or working out or achieving in some workplace or, or maybe it's being liked by someone that sits next to you here or somewhere else. Can you only find pleasure with that relationship or purchase or food when it's just right? Is the mistrust and doubt and insecurity and unbelief so great that being still makes you look in the mirror and see something that you don't like? The fear that's consuming you. Is your your pursuit of happiness keeping you from finding your purpose? Is your fear and anxiety controlling you? Is your motto, my way or no way? Is your theme song, Frank Sinatra's, I did it my way? If so, then you might have a wound that God wants to bring a big breakthrough in your life for. If so, then you might be stuck in a vice of gluttony that will only go away when we remember who we are and to whom we belong. Let me leave you with a a thought. To those of you this morning who fear, I don't know what your fear is. Maybe that fear is the economy. Maybe it's elections. Maybe it's still general conference reactions. Maybe it's a fear right now of incapacitation that says, I don't know who's going to be in the pulpit after June. I don't know what your fear is. If you find yourself like one of the ten spies, for those of us who have control issues that are keeping you fighting, frozen, or fleeing, for those of us who find it easier to mistrust and doubt, to those of us whose insecurities are keeping us pretty bound up, to those of us who are stuck in a pattern of belief that has reduced God to nothing more than a cosmic slot machine in the sky where we just keep chucking in coins hoping he's going to show up, to those of us who know we are ruled by consumption, Consumption of pleasure. Hear these words. You were born again for something more. Paul would say it this way. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you. Adopted you as his own children. 
And now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. It's a little different point of view, isn't it? Than the fears that bind us, hold us, capture us. If you find yourself this morning consuming food, advancement, relationship, and it's not fulfilling, if fear is ruling your life, maybe it's time to talk with someone and release your control. Release your hurts and allow God to speak into your heart that he will be your supply. Maybe it's time to remember who you really are and who he really wants wants to be in your life. It may mean that for a while those things that consume you need to be put in a 40-day fast. A time, which is, remember as the Hebrews would say, a, a really long time. Opportunity to push it aside and say, Lord, I want you to be my supply. I want you to be my all in all. I don't know what fears you may have, and I would venture to guess that every one of us in this room has some fear that we're dealing with. Maybe we've named it, maybe we haven't. But don't let it consume you. There is a God who's invited you to be born again for something so much more. Who are you? Child of God? Co-heir? of his glory. Would you pray with me? Gracious, loving God, we thank you. We thank you for this word, for this strange approach uh, to looking at this vice. It's really easy, Lord, to look at the comic books and to see our pop culture tell us what gluttony is. But it's more than just the buffet at the Golden Corral. It is a consumption that drives so very many of us. It's a, it's a consumption that opens us up to this wound of fear that grips us, holds us back, keeps us from being who you've created us to be. And so, Lord, this morning, I ask that your spirit would come and speak freedom over those of us who are so consumed this morning. That in that, that freedom that you, you long for your people, that we would find the courage to, to sit with someone and to, to share and to look into those, those places of woundedness. And that there we might receive the, the salve of your healing and your wholeness. For those of us being consumed, Lord Jesus, Grant us your grace. Give us a different point of view. Help us to be able to stand up on the promises. To be who you say we are. Lord, we thank you for this word and we ask that you would use it to build your kingdom. To help all of us to know your love in a greater way. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, 